You sound fantastic. Good. I have this fancy microphone. Did you get the Shore? Which one did you get? Rode. Rode. Oh, yeah. That's nice. It's a beautiful, sleek little microphone. It's going to be your friend for the next hour and a half. I know. (laughs) Think of it as like, think of you being at a dinner party and I'm introducing you to Justin and we're sitting around just kicking around ideas and thoughts about the world. And that's about as serious as this is going to be. And I know your brilliance will just shine through. So just don't sweat. And I will say far less offensive things than I would at a dinner party. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption and a little humor along the way. Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me as always is fellow technologist, futurist, and innovator, Anju Ahuja. On today's episode, we have a run-in with the law. Well, with the legal side of innovation, at least. We are privileged today to have a guest who is the former general counsel of Alphabet's Project Loon and the current general counsel for Starship Technologies. We'll talk about how to find a company whose mission and leadership are inspirational, We'll talk about career changes for leaders in the Great Resignation. And we'll talk about the complexities of policy and law in the world of innovation. It's really like three or four podcasts in one. You're going to love it. Stay tuned. Welcome, Jennifer Miller. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show, especially given all that you've had going on in the last month and a half or so. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So for a little bit of background, we do something a little non-traditional. We introduce our guests with a list of words that we think represent them, both personally and professionally. And I had a lot of fun coming up with yours, so I'm curious how accurate you're going to think this read is. So are you ready? Absolutely. Here's your list. Discerning, deliberate, global citizen, centered. By the way, that's one of the first things I noticed about you persuasive, optimistic, and empathetic. Oh, I love that. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. It's very you. And so now what we'd like to do is have you meet Justin in the lobby of a fabulous building and take a 15-floor journey with him where you get to tell him all about who you are before you guys end up on some 15-floor adventure. The doors have just opened to an elevator, which we will both enter. And of course, walk to opposite sides of the elevator because uh, we're in the tail end of a pandemic. As I say through my mask, hi, uh, I'm Justin. I see we're both headed to the same floor. Tell me about yourself. Well, I'm Jennifer. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me into your elevator, first and foremost. (laughs) I'm tickled and honored that you asked me to, to join you. So what would I tell you through my mask? I would tell you, professionally, I'm an attorney who loves to work at innovative and inspiring companies. And personally, that I'm a, a mom and a wife and a dog owner here in Northern California, where I've lived for about 15 years. And the pandemic has been a gift, I think, in a way for many of us, and especially for me, it's allowed me to recenter and understand what's important to me. And so I'm just really excited to have this conversation today. So you're being very humble, but you've done, when you say you've worked with some innovative companies and you love them, I think that's, that's a bit of an understatement. You're now GC general counsel, and chief legal officer at Starship. And for anyone who's listening who does not know what Starship is, go to starship.xyz. It's a fabulous robotics company doing some amazing things. And they hit their millionth delivery early this year. So, so back to you, Jennifer. You've helped open up new markets for innovations. You've helped companies navigate pretty murky regulatory territory. And you've helped companies grow through various and deferring capitalization cycles. You've helped balloons traverse foreign markets (laughs) to deliver internet connectivity. And now you're helping users get all kinds of necessities everywhere from college campuses to families that need to get milk for their kids. So what draws you to helping companies like this? And and what's the common thread that ties this all together? There are a couple of common threads, actually. I am a person that loves to keep learning that loves to do different things and try new things all the time. So when I joined 
Loon, which was the alphabet moonshot company that was trying to bring internet connectivity via high altitude stratospheric balloons. I was with them for about three and a half years. And then when I was joining Starship, which as you said, provides a fleet of autonomous robots that offer on-demand delivery of food and groceries and whatnot, whatever, whatever needs to be delivered, quite frankly, in a five different countries around the world. The things that inspire me are things that let me do new and different things. And for me, that's focused on innovation. It's helping businesses solve problems where no one's done that before. No one else before Loon was offering internet via stratospheric balloon. And there aren't a lot of companies offering robotic deliveries via autonomous robots that are doing so commercially and Starship is doing so commercially. And so solving problems that are new and innovative that don't squarely fit into regulatory frameworks, I find really, really appealing and interesting. And that's what draws me to those companies. And then on top of that, the companies that I love being part of have really great collaborative teams that really work together beautifully. So I'm really curious, Jennifer, we're in some heady recruitment times and it's People call it the great resignation. I mean, for me, for me this year personally has been the great relocation, <laughs> both me and my family. But, you know, people are moving very quickly. How do you recommend people do proper due diligence around the kind of leadership, the kind of board, the kind of company that is worth joining, that is worth taking a professional risk for? And what are the best strategies to due diligence that? Oh, it's such an excellent excellent question. And one I have many, many thoughts about, and I think it depends and I think it evolves and I I can give a couple of different examples. I think it depends and evolves depending on where you are in your career, first and foremost. So I do think that at different stages of, of a person's career, when you're just starting out, your, your positioning is different versus say, when you are like me, your general counsel, you're reporting directly to the CEO, working directly with the board on really the top level, most significant governance matters for an entity. So there's a wide spectrum of different positions and different roles, but I can speak to sort of where I am right now and what's important and what I've learned over the years, which is that you're absolutely right. Every other article is about the great resignation and people leaving to find jobs that and roles that really speak to them. And what I have found so impactful for myself is finding a company that has a really good mission. Um, Starship for one focused on deliveries and sustainability and positive effects on the environment. All of those things has a really strong mission and core to bring value to people. And that draws really good people to that wonderful and very integral mission of the company. But then really at the end of the day, it's the leadership because the buck stops with the leadership and how they treat people and how they work with people and how they listen to people who have differing opinions from the established opinion. And anytime I've been in an organization and had a good experience, it's because my opinions, the opinions of the folks on my team, broadly the entire company, we want, we want to hear those opinions. The leadership values that. They want to have the dialogue and have the opportunity for debate internally so that the company can reach the most effective and the most efficient and the most empathetic result, if you will. And that's why I think inclusion and diversity is so important in how you build teams, because if you're building teams, if you're building products, excuse me, for a wide variety of people, you need a wide variety of people to be building those products so that it speaks to those people and it has the right market fit and it, it, can blossom that way. But I think people are looking for companies where they're treated, where where companies understand that that their employees are adults, that they have great ideas, that they want to be pushed, they want to be stretched, and they want to be respected. They want to be able to share their opinion and not have it held against them. Because if you're in a position where it is held against you, or it's toxic, or you're blamed for sharing an unpopular opinion, people will most certainly leave. And they'll leave very, very quickly. Well, and they'll be bitter. Well, that's right. What really amazes me are team leaders that think you can actually innovate and retain your talent with that staff that's driving those innovations if you operate like you're in a command and control environment. 
I mean, you just have to be willing to have diverse opinions come in and you have to be willing to perspective shift and change your thinking. And how do you, so how do you have some go-to questions that you ask to suss out whether or not people have that ability to perspective shift, to be open-minded, to be empathetic and compassionate? Yes. Well, there are some questions and then some of it's just, I feel like my, your gut over time, you start Mm -hmm. to really realize what people are saying and then also what they're not saying. Right. But some of the best advice I've had in terms of when you're interviewing is to ask behavioral questions. Tell me about a time when, tell me about a situation that this happened where if you're saying to your manager, where tell me about a time when someone came to you with an idea you didn't agree with, how did you react? And did it did it change your perspective and how, and how did it affect your relationship with that person? And not just ask the manager, you ask the person as well. And I think one of the most important things for any person that's considering joining a a company is to find some backdoor references and really understand from a person that's not in the hiring committee that you're meeting with, the company is always going to give you people that are enthusiastic, engaged and very positive you want to talk to some other people that aren't on your interview panel. So ideally here in Silicon Valley, it's often very easy to find someone who knows somebody that's at a company and to really just ask some questions. What's it really like? Um, I have found some people will say, well, you look on some of the, the sites online, there's a number of them where you can share your reviews, but a lot of those are fairly curated. And I don't know that they act people really tell the unvarnished truth, which is why you need a friend of a friend, usually or a friend. I also feel like as soon as somebody puts something on there that questions the ethics or the environment of the company, then HR goes and asks 10 people to load it with like positive things. Right. Well, that's right. Right. I mean, it's, it's such a game. That's right. So you really do need to find a trusted person and then ask them a whole lot of questions, both positive and negative questions. Tell me about a time where this did not go well. Tell me what happens when your CEO gets angry. Um, tell me about a time where when you ask the board, what's the, what are they seeing that's positive, but also what are they seeing that's a challenge and that's a negative and what are they trying to solve for right now? Don't just keep asking, well, tell me about the plans of the company because those are always going to be rosy. I want to hear about the things that are happening in the background that are, that are difficult to unpack, but that's where we make the biggest difference and we can then really empower our team because the best companies I've worked at we were all in a boat rowing together towards the same goal, and we did extraordinary things when we were able to do that. You know, and I think it's, you cannot overstate the importance, at least in, at our stage for all three of us, you know, where we are in our, both in our lives and in our careers. I, I think you cannot overstate the importance of you really have to be mentally aligned. Like you have to have a certain level of mental fortitude, but also a certain level of like value alignment with the people that you're going to be working yes. with, with the leadership. And it can't just be at the top level. It has to be people at the middle level too that kind of understand and believe in that philosophy. Otherwise, things fall apart, friction grows, you know, people get distracted, and it's, yeah. it's unfortunate. And I think you do get to a point in your career where you're like, yeah, I'm going to avoid that. <laughs> I'm going to go find I'm going to go find somebody who has a dream but also has like good leadership style and ethics going yeah. with it. Yeah, well, that's right. Because business isn't always – easy. They're off. There are so often bumps in the road. There's turbulence. It's rarely a straight line up to the top right corner. There's often zigs and zags. And it's in those moments where things don't go so well, where the real essential quality of the leader and the leadership come out. When people are strong leaders, but they're empathetic and they're respectful and they're kind to the human side of things, that's when you break out in terms of just extraordinary success because you empower people and they want to be loyal. They, the morale is high. You're achieving good things together through the hard as well as the, the good times. And that's where success, I think, really comes from. Yeah. You're a tribe, right? You can only that's be right. a tribe if you act like you're part of a tribe. Uh, well, that's right. And that's really supporting people and, and recognizing that everyone has different opinions and those opinions are all worthwhile. And I just want to say to people that are listening, I have, I know personally that I've been put in a position where I've had to give references that were not particularly glowing. And I didn't necessarily want that feedback attached to me, but I didn't want to not speak a truth. And so I often found that there are some good signals you can send. You can say things like there'll be more 
in what I don't say in this reference call than <laughs> in what I do say. And you are going to have to go read between the lines and go triangulate, but I'll point you in the right directions and then go do your own investigation. So, you know, we don't have to throw people under the bus, but I do think we should That's be encouraging right. a culture where people are much more candid about what companies are like on the inside, how people are motivated, how they're driven, what their mm -hmm. operating style is. Yeah, That's right. It's time is, things are going so quickly, right? You know, a year in your life, you could be doing some really great innovative things, but if you're in a place where you're not gonna be allowed to be yourself, is it worth it? You could have gone and done it somewhere where you could be. Well, that's right. And the, that that authenticity is, is so important to, I think, being satisfied in your role and satisfied with your life. And if the, if nothing else has been taught to me during this pandemic is that now that so many of us are working from home, your work reaches in through your laptop into your home. So you have to find a place that brings you some modicum of joy and peace because it's reaching into your home. And if you're in a situation where it's toxic, you're being yelled at or screamed at, or your, your manager is, is, is reaching into your home in a negative way, it's, it's really intolerable. Yeah. I know. I've, I've been there and I understand exactly what you're saying, but I was there 20 years ago and I'm like, never oh, again. So. That's right. That's right. I think you have a couple of books in you that are going to come out in a variety of topics. Yeah. And I know, you know, we talked about your potential on a speaking circuit about related stuff, but you know, what else do you want to encourage people to think about as the legal field is evolving? There's more and more really unique hires coming into the chief legal officers you know, the role and into GCs, people that, you know, don't necessarily have the same backgrounds as what you would think of a GC 20 years ago. That's right. Do you have any? Well, I do. I, I, I'm so glad you asked that question. I was actually speaking with someone who asked for some advice about her background and she comes from a, a less traditional legal background because to what you're there, what you're alluding to is that the traditional general counsel path, path to the GC chair has been, you go to start from law school, you go to yep. a very large law firm, yep. in particular here in the Bay Area, there's a handful of them. You, you start as an IPO, an initial public offering or an M&A attorney at one of these firms. And then that's sort of the, the training ground to go, you work with one of your clients who maybe goes public and then they need a general counsel and then you're brought in for that role. So a lot, traditionally, a lot of people became general counsels because they had that background. But what I find really interesting is a lot of those people had that background, but they've never once worked on innovation and patents or litigation. Or in my case, I came up as an as a intellectual property attorney working on trademarks, and on internet and privacy law, content licensing, and then just a ton of inbound and outbound licensing. So I come at the legal field from a completely different path. And it became very apparent to me as I became more senior that there was no reason that someone with my background couldn't be an effective general counsel. And in many instances, it might even be a more effective yeah, I'm sure you'd be general better. counsel. Yep. Because I'm closer, a, a person that, for instance, with my background is, is closer in some ways to, to the actual business of the company. And so, for instance, when I was at Gigamon and, and working on all their different sales deals, I knew all the status of all the different sales deals at any moment in any time because my team and I were working on every single one of them. And so I knew, you know, in terms of at the end of the quarter, what was likely to close, what the stage of everything was. And that was just a really unique and helpful perspective. And so I think what I tell people the most is not to look at the areas that you don't have experience in. It's really to look at the areas that you do. And half of the battle, I think actually more than half the battle is recognizing what you don't know and then learning enough about them to fill the gaps and then hiring really good people around you to do that work. And I have found as a general counsel coming with an IP and an innovation and a commercial contracts background that pretty easy to learn the other areas of law because I've just so grounded in the business for so many years. And I still see lots of people coming up through that M&A and IPO route, which is terrific. And I'm glad for them, of course. But I just think that there should be no reason why a person with a litigation background can't be general counsel. I actually think a litigation background is extraordinary because you see all the things that can go wrong and then you make sure you can go do them properly or compliance, privacy. These are things that are foremost forefront on businesses' minds these days. And, and people with those backgrounds 
are just as willing and able to, to be a general counsel and sit in that lead seat. It's really about understanding what you don't know, learning about them, getting help where you need it, and just being a really good business problem solver. So I encourage a lot of people to think outside the box and to take an untraditional route up to the GC chair, because I think there's tremendous value in it. I was going to say, it sounds the same way you'd want to speak about forming an innovation team or a company anyway. I mean, right. whether it's in the, the the general counsel's office or just the, you know, product development or, you know, any entrepreneurship, right? Yeah, I think nonlinearity is, is key. That's definitely true. There were some other things in there, though, that really struck me as you were speaking. If, you know, if I, I, I mentor some millennials and, you know, maybe someone who's like on the verge of Gen Z, actually. And I think for them, they don't feel as, they don't feel as worried about having a non-traditional or non-linear career path. Actually, one person, Justin, you put me in touch with, a, a recent graduate. Um, I won't say her name just in case she's not, she's not comfortable. And that was one of her questions, which is, how much do I need to worry about doing this and then doing this other thing that's completely not even adjacent, but totally separate if down the road I might want to do why? And I tried to tell her this and I truly believe it. I think Gen X has told themselves a story about how you get to the top and how you have to stay on rails to some extent, because that may be some of the things that we picked up from prior generations. And we were just, we had a different value system, you know, coming into the workforce and we came in at a different time in the economy. And now I think the generations behind us have this awesome opportunity to really explore, right? To try different fields, to stitch together whole different ways of viewing problems in different spaces and that you're actually advantaged for it, especially in a world where things are so agile and Mm -hmm. so dynamic. I mean, you're better off having multiple skills and multiple points of view, even if they don't all complement each other, than you are having one set of experiences that just gets deeper. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. I have friends in the sciences that are saying the same thing. That are clinicians that'll actually tell me, you know what, what I learned in a kitchen, you know, working with a chef actually helps me be a better scientist in, you know, areas that they're working in like cancer studies, cancer research. That's right. And I think the key though, is a little bit of what you articulated, which is that you have to be able to tell the story. There has to be a narrative. There has to be an arc of why you did those things and what it has taught you. And when you can tell that story well, then it serves the person very, very well. If you can't articulate that narrative and really explain the skills that you learn from each of those steps, that's where I think it falls apart a little bit. Half of the battle, at least when you're an attorney and you're trying to get a job, maybe I imagine more than just being an attorney in tech is you have to tell the narrative of your story and your elevator pitch as to why you're the right person for this job. And all of those past experiences lend some positiveness of why you're the right person. But you have to find those threads, of course, in anything you do. And I think having that, that's why I'm so envious of people that take time off to travel, that take time off to do really interesting things. Because I think you learn so many life skills that are extraordinarily valuable in business. Especially the elevator ride speech. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about the complexities of finding the right fit emotionally kind of from a leadership perspective. But I'm really curious now to talk a little bit about the legal complexities that you have to deal with when you're, you know, working at a company that is pushing the boundaries of technology or the way people interact with technology. Yeah, And I just want to say when it comes to the regulatory complexity, some of which I know from spaces that I've operated within, it is a whole suite of opportunities, but it also requires a lot of bravery because you really have to bring people along on the mission with you, and they're not all the people that work with you. There are outside constituents that just need to be swayed, and, and I definitely want to unpack that a little later. Uh, sure. But is that part of the draw, out of curiosity? Oh, absolutely. I <laughs> I love solving problems that no one else has had to solve before and thinking three steps ahead and trying to break down new markets and break open new markets and then work with governments to help them understand why innovation is good and why innovation really can help solve larger problems like bringing internet or bringing food and and supplies to people, especially during the pandemic, where it's really important to have touchless deliveries that can come to your home and bring you food when you can't leave. Or if if you're injured and you can't go to the store, let's get food to people and deliveries to people. 
And all of that solves real human problems, which is very appealing to me. It seems like that both of these examples that you brought up, you're doing things that will probably demand later regulation, right? You're doing things that no one's ever done, and there there isn't necessarily a regulatory framework around those business models. Do you take that into consideration? And do you get proactive about that to try and direct what that legislation might look like? You have to in many instances. And in particular, a lot of it's around education, talking about why frameworks that were perhaps established 10, 15, 20 years ago should be updated to allow for innovation. And when people understand that sometimes technology moves faster than regulation, they understand why flexibility and and innovation and regulation is really, really important because it does help solve problems. There are lots of international bodies where the regulatory or the, the legislative cycle, if you will, takes five years, 10 years, technology is going to pass by well, well before five or 10 years comes along and you'll always be behind. And so we often have to work in ways that allow for regulatory testing, trials, exceptions, things like that. With Starship in particular, though, there's an entire team that's been dedicated and focused working with governments and they have licenses and permissions to offer our services all over the US and in different countries across the world because people understand that that driverless and, and contactless deliveries are really important. Again, it, it's it's not lost on me that the companies that you've been working with are, I, I think to say ambitious is an understatement. Totally agree. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> what, what do you think the greatest challenges are when you're bringing that kind of level of innovation to a market and, and trying to do it in a way that is scalable? It's a delicate balance of managing your investment on a number of different fronts. Because in order to be so bold from a technological and innovative sense, you obviously have to have a very strong product and engineering team behind the technology itself. But at the same time, you also have to be very focused on the go-to-market side, on the sales and revenue side, on the government side, the licensing permissions, things like that. So you really do have to think very carefully. You can't be too heavily focused on one or the other side of the uh, of the balance, if you will, because then you get out of whack. And then you might have great technology, which isn't approved to operate, or you might have, on the flip side, you might be approved to operate, but your technology isn't really ready to be in the market yet. So you really, that delicate balance, I think, is probably the most difficult because you want to continue to develop, but you also want to continue to make sure you're able to operate in the market. So, so this brings up something I've been really keen to explore. This whole notion of how do you go so quickly and how do you keep people on the right side of regulatory and policy issues, even if their ambitions want to take them a little further out than where you think the company needs to be playing, or, or even IP issues, right? You, you very ambitious innovators that are out there trying to break all kinds of boundaries, and your job is to make sure that they do it on the right side of the law on the right side of regulatory issues. How do you strike all that balance? (laughs) You have to plan ahead. You have to think through what the next steps are and you have to start building foundational steps for success. I think two, three, five, 10 years down the road. And that takes some guessing as to what will be important for that period of time down the road. You can't just be planning for today. You have to be planning for tomorrow and the tomorrow after, I think. And that requires tremendous building of relationships and touch points and and just making certain that governments and regulators understand that safety must come first. It does come first with every company I've been with. Safety has gone hand in hand with innovation. And that's really, really important to Starship. It's critical to Loon as well. And all of that is a constant conversation. So you have to continue to just be engaged over and over and continue to lend your voice in these communities and then help others along. It's, it's not just one company thinking about innovation. It should be industry thinking about innovation. I find uh, you know what Starship is doing pretty fascinating, but we haven't given you the moment here to really just explain to our listeners exactly what, what the company does. And I think, I think that would be good information. Of course. Starship Technologies is a company that was founded in 2014, and we provide autonomous on-demand delivery via robots of prepared food and groceries. We've actually, 
Anji, you had said earlier, 1 million deliveries. We've actually completed more than 2 million commercial deliveries. We operate in five different countries across the world. And we are operating autonomous robots in all of these different locations. So perhaps if you've been on one of a couple of dozen college campuses across the U.S., you've seen our little white robots bringing food and deliveries to dorms and to students. And then across the United Kingdom and in Tallinn, Estonia, which is where our company was founded, and in Finland, we also offer grocery delivery. So our robots are out and about in the community delivering whatever people need. And it's I, it's just been an extraordinary time. I've only been with the company for about five weeks, but I have seen them and known them because where I live here in Mountain View, California, there's a deployment of robots in our downtown. So I've known of Starship for many years and I'm just thrilled. I was just thrilled when I learned that this was an opportunity that I could even be considered for. And and when I took the job, went and took a picture of myself with the robots in downtown Mountain View and, and sent that to my CEO and said, I just can't wait to be with you all. So this is Alistair, right? From, yeah, yeah okay. that's right. And, and these robots are roughly the size of, you know, a little wagon, like a kid's wagon? That's right. That's right. And they share the sidewalks with pedestrians. They do. They, they, they go on the sidewalks. They can cross roads. And they, I think they hold about 20 pounds of grocery. Okay. I'm sensing that's, that's a good amount of pizza on a college campus for a dorm. Um, that's right. They, they carry up to about 20 pounds or three grocery bags worth of food. And they, they travel about four miles an hour. And they can make it up a curb. I saw. They do up and down curbs. And then they also can very easily make it through snow and through rain. Okay. What do they do in the elevator? I, I just, I have to ask, how does that work? <laughs> They're mainly outside. I don't think they go in the elevator. <laughs> Got it. So that's that's a good workaround. That makes perfect sense. Then they can't tell anyone what they do on the elevator ride is what you're saying. That's right. <laughs> no 15 floor conversation. So Jennifer, picking which market to test or launch in is often pretty critical to a company's success. And I'm not sure how well appreciated that is. I know product and marketing people are, you know, pretty familiar with the make or break cycle that can come out of something like this. But even from a regulatory or a legal standpoint, it can really be the difference between whether or not you're facing headwinds or whether you're facing tailwinds. How do you how do you frame up the decision of which markets to go and test and launch in versus markets that just do not look attractive from, from the legal point of view or the policy point of view? Sure. You have to do it a review of the different, it sounds pretty straightforward, but you really do have to do, and it may be almost too simplistic and naive. You have to do a, a review of the basic laws to understand, say, let's think about Starship in particular, the traffic laws, the sidewalk laws, the different rules and what's required from a, an engagement point of view, what would permit us to be able to test there in a market. And then we also have to look at which customers we might want to serve. Is there a density of customers? Which partners are there? Are they open to testing? Um, for Loon, it was very different. We were looking at a countrywide market launch. And in that case, we had to look similarly, where could we get our licenses and permissions? Who did we want to work with? Who was our partner going to be? Was there an openness to testing and trial and innovation that would allow us to try our balloon deployment in that country? And that's how we would decide. So it was really openness Openness to innovation, openness to thinking through different frameworks. And there were many, many countries that were very interested, in particular with Loon, that wanted to try something as innovative as Loon and, and really worked with us to build out frameworks that would let us test there. So with, with Loon, the interesting thing to me is you could be in the airspace of one country, and right, so it's radio frequency, and you could be quote unquote, available in another country. Was that ever an issue, the way that the signals would bleed over borders? We actually took great care to make sure that the signals did not bleed over oh. borders. And there are a lot of requirements internationally for cross-border transmission and making certain that there's not interference. And that was very much part of what we did. So if a balloon was flying, say, um, moving to Kenya, for instance, we would, the balloon could be in the airspace of a neighboring country where it was permitted to be, but the, but the transmission part of the balloon would be turned off until it came into Kenyan airspace, at which point then it would turn on and it would serve our people, our customers in Kenya. Oh, that's brilliant. 
So we've talked about what makes markets attractive, right? Or, you know, things that have to be negotiated and due diligence needs to be conducted to make sure that there's the premise for demand. And then it sounds like there's some demand generation that goes along with this Mm -hmm. before you decide this is a good market for you. What happens when the math doesn't work out the way that you expected it to in reality, and there's a misjudgment somewhere along the line. How do you how do you correct or recalibrate? And is there any kind of good story from any of the companies you've worked at in the past where well, there was a learning lesson here that our listeners can learn from? Oh, I think there's always a learning lesson. If it doesn't work in one market and then you do a really thorough postmortem as to why it didn't work, you can learn so much more to make certain that mm-hmm. the next market is even more effective. I People always ask me, when I'm interviewing, what's what's a time that you failed or your company failed? I, I don't view it as black and white as failure. I, every opportunity is a learning opportunity. So if you if you go into a market, you you have a trial, it's not effective, and then you're really thoughtful as to why. There's always always nuggets of learning that will make the next time even more effective. And then ideally, that's what makes a a fabulous and a really successful company, which is that you have to learn from those trials because if you don't, then you're just, what are you out there for? Interesting. So with all this experience, is there a heuristic that you've developed that you would say any innovator should really understand the following about law and policy, or at least how they should start approaching their study of the law and policy around their innovation? Oh, what a good question. I don't know that I have anything quite so black and white. For me, it's it's really just, you have to dive right in. You have to start to talk with people. You have to understand what the key points of value are going to be with that innovation. Is it software? Is it hardware? Is it is it in the legal or the policy sense? Is it local? Is it international? There's so many different elements, depending on what you're thinking about. Is it Is it patent law? Is it trademark law? Is it trade secret law? Is it open source? There's any number of different ways that can break open success for a company. And I don't know that it's just quite so formulaic. At least I haven't figured out what that would be yet. And and hopefully it won't be because then (laughs) you get (laughs) to keep your job, right? (laughs) She'll be bored. (laughs) So what else from your time at Loon did you bring forward to your work at Starship? whether it's philosophical or procedural, what did you take away from Loon that you will never forget? Agility. When I joined Loon, Loon was still part of Google X, which or X, which was formerly known as Google X, which is their moonshot factory over there at Google. And the entire way of thinking about solving really hard to solve sometimes seemingly intractable worldwide problems with an audacity that I had never experienced before is something that I will hold core to my self going forward. And it really helped me think about solving huge problems in a very different way because all of the moonshots affiliated now in the past and I imagine in the future with Google or Alphabet are really trying to solve huge human and societal challenges. And to have the audacity to believe you can do that, I think is extraordinary. And many companies just don't have the the desire or the internal strength, the wherewithal, whatever word you want to use, just the, the desire to do that. And to be part of an effort on such a large scale was just extraordinary. So it's taught me how to think about problems, big and small, in just a very different way. That there's a way to solve problems. You just have to be really creative to do it, and you should never give up trying. And that is, I think, the lesson that I took away from Loon. It was an extraordinary disappointment when Alphabet decided to, to shut down and wind Loon down, but we made such a positive impact on the, the communications and connectivity industry that I, I will never regret those three and a half years that I was involved. Well, and it sounds like in addition to the lessons around mental fortitude, you are at Starship applying a lot of what you learn. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Alistair is doing the same thing with his team, right? Well, that's right. Some of those- Well, I think it, we should probably let folks know, just explain who Alistair is. So Alistair was our CEO over at Loon. Mm-hmm. And then when Loon wound down, he went over to be the CEO at Starship, which is how I learned of this role in the first place. 
And it's a good pairing. I'm excited. I know. It's only week five, but it feels like you've been doing stuff for six months there. <laughs> so, it, it, hypothetically speaking, or if you have a real example that you can share without compromising anybody or anything, can you walk listeners through a time where the vision was really obvious and the the use case was super compelling and there were challengers on the outside that would not really, you know, they weren't on board and you really had to convert them. I mean, what's the legal or the policy strategy or are there anecdotes around this that can add some color for people? Because I don't think people understand the difficulty of negotiating in situations like that and how multifaceted ah. it is. Oh, it's hugely multifaceted. And I think any industry where you're trying to break new ground, there are incumbents in adjacent industries that get nervous when they see a new and really unique way of solving a problem coming aboard because it somehow perhaps might disrupt their 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 place in the industry. We were very fortunate at Loon that we had really strong cross-industry relationships, but one one example I can imagine. Um, the satellite industry, for instance, mm-hmm. is one that com- could be, in some instances, competitive um, to, say, high-altitude balloons, for instance. Although we started, um, when we were at Loon, an industry association, um, the HAPS Alliance, the High Altitude Platform Alliance, which was bringing a lot of those players together. And so I think the best solution in, the, in those sorts of situations is partnership and recognizing that in any sort of scenario, there's any number of different ways to solve problems. And if you work together, it just increases the size of the market. The market shouldn't, isn't necessarily in these scenarios. It's not necessarily fixed when you create the demand and you create more market space, everybody wins, for instance. Yeah, I think in innovation, that's particularly critical. You know, in the business world, decades ago, people called it coopetition, and it was sort right. of like, okay, that's just making the pie, you know, more fair or larger. But with innovation, it helps to have the leverage of other players in the supply chain or in the value chain. Mm-hmm. It helps to have them aligned with your interests, so they're not, you know, creating obstacles to your success. It helps to make them feel like they're going to win with a good end game too. That's right. When I think about Project Loon. There are a lot of things that remind me of the One Laptop Per Child project. I don't know if you remember that, Nicholas Negroponte's kind of trying to bring computing right mm-hmm. to the developing mm-hmm. world. There were a lot of reasons that didn't necessarily work out. But my point is there were a lot of technologies that they developed, like mesh mm-hmm. Wi-Fi, that came out of that. Are there things that that were developed in Loon that you think will have a legacy long past the... Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. There are... Everything from the frameworks of, of how to think about policy and regulation at the international level, as well as the regional and national level, as well as some of the specific innovations that are still being used by different parts of Google. There's a different project within X called Tara, which is doing great work bringing internet connectivity yeah. uh, into Afri- different parts of Africa that has picked up on a lot of that Loon mission and carried it forward. And then tangibly, a number of the Loon patents were sold to SoftBank and are being used by the HAPS Alliance. So a lot of that is being carried forward. When we wound Loon down, that was really just foremost in our mind about how do we make sure that the gains and the positive benefits are shared among the community so that the gains aren't lost. Well, personally, as someone who's working in the communication services provider innovation space, I think Loon also raised a critical level of awareness around connectivity needs around the world. You know, you have players that are very focused on their own market. And I think Loon created this rallying cry around, we can do better, right? Like there are people that deserve better than what they're getting. Sure. Yeah, it was such an honor to be affiliated with Loon for the time period that I was. It was a really wonderful project. It's just, it's it's sad to see it wound down, but I love seeing its legacy live on. Yeah, well said. So I'm going to switch us back to Starship because there's so many interesting, exciting things up ahead for Starship and for all of you working there. Tell me what, you guys must have conversations, right, on the side about what you think Starship will do for the field of robotics or the field of drones or deliveries in general. You know, what's the what's the long-term vision? 
oh, just to continue to grow our fleet. Right now we have a global fleet. It, it's, we have a global fleet of over a thousand robots doing nearly 10,000 deliveries a day. And so we just want to continue to grow our fleet and continue to bring convenience and time back to people mm-hmm. all over the world. And we're able to, we see it every day in the, in the markets we're already in. So we're just keen to keep expanding and growing. And it's exciting to see what was, what really drew me to Starship is they're not in trial or pilot mode. They're in really accelerating commercial service mode and offering services to hundreds of thousands of of students and people all over the world. So we're just keen to expand, have lots of new partnerships, continue to grow our fleet and, and offer our services to more and more people. Yeah. So it strikes me as, and it just hit me now, you're a robots as a service company. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. (laughs) Autonomous robots as a service. Um, Because you you own the fleet, right? You are we do, and we manage the fleet with for our partners. That's right. So how does how does someone get involved with with Starship? Like if I own a chain of pizza parlors in in Sunita. Oh, you let me know, and I connect you to our <laughs> to our head of partnerships for sure. Uh, we would that's that's how. But if you were a user and say you were at. Uh, Oregon State University or UCLA or one of the college campuses we were on. I was recently had the opportunity to go visit two of our deployments in Arizona. You pull up the Starship app and you can make your order if you're in one of our service areas. And you just off, you order off of the app and your food is delivered by robot. Okay. Well, so you, there must be a crazy story somewhere in here. What's the craziest <laughs> delivery you guys have ever made? Oh, I have no idea. Okay, so there's no <laughs> lore. There's no like... <laughs> Somebody should make up a story. I mean, like you need a good urban legend here. Oh, I'm sure. I'll have to find out. I don't know the answer to that. That's a really good okay, question. Okay, well, when you and Alistair make one up, tell me what it is later. I'm curious. Okay. Well, and, and I have to imagine that usually on a college campus, when students are ordering food, it's going to be late night and they're inebriated. Um, are they nice to the delivery robots? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they, as best we can tell, for sure they are. So they're practicing and nonviolence. That's right. That's right. I, the robots, I don't know if you've seen one, Justin, but they I, are, I have. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're very appealing looking. And so we have people love them. And that's, it's, that makes it easy. So we do get a, a, one of our robots say, um, falls off the curb, someone will almost always come pick it up and put it back on the sidewalk. So this will be <laughs> strange because the shape is totally different. But when I first saw the robots, they reminded me of elements of Wally and like oh, Evie. Sure. I mean, I don't know why, but it just struck me as, oh, this is this is similar to that. They reminded me of my 73 Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, I could see ah. that too. See, another thing that people have affinity for. That was a yeah, good well, year. I, I did. Yeah. That's right. They're just at the end of the day, they're really, they're efficient. They're sustainable. It's just a great way to deliver a meal that you don't need a two ton vehicle to do that. And so the robot's just a great way to extend reach for our partners, for our communities and and get, and just really extend the ways that people can have things delivered to them. Within the company, do you have some quantified understanding of the difference in carbon impact per delivery? Well, for sure. Our robots are zero emissions. And so that in and of itself, they're battery operated. And they every night they go back and they're they're plugged in and so they're they're battery powered. And it's really just so much better for our environment to do something like this instead of having cars driving around for sure. And there's more joy in seeing Wally bring you a pizza. Of course. That's right. And they reduce congestion. They reduce pollution. So all of those things are really increasingly important for cities and suburbs as e-commerce grows. So the robots are just a great way they, to engage in a sustainable way and, and gets cars off the road. How did you accomplish that much in a hardware-intensive business, a platform-intensive business, because you guys are building this platform, with you know all of the requirements that go with that, like how are you able to do this with that level of economic efficiency? Yeah, so yeah, we have raised funding, of course, because it is hardware intensive. And that said, but we have fairly positive unit economics. We've discovered that having robots 
and delivering items in this way is actually very, you know, it's, it's, it's good from an economic point of view. Economics matter, actually. It's one of the biggest things with innovation. You have to figure out as it scales, do your unit economics get better? Because if they don't, you probably need to do it better. Right. And ours are, ours are good. And so we continue to optimize. We do all of our own manufacturing. It's really, really interesting. And really? that is, we do in Estonia. And so okay. that is something that has been, I think, really, really interesting to see. I'm used to companies that do a ton of outsourcing of their manufacturing, whereas we do all of that in-house for the most part. So then would you say it's helped you guys in the adoption and the acceleration of your innovation cycle to have locations in multiple geographies and teams working in different markets? Or is that more of a, it makes it harder to bridge gaps as people are going so quickly from one office to another? Well, our engineering team and product teams are, are based in Estonia and Finland. Okay. So the, the company was founded by um, founders of Skype. Right. So very focused in the Northern European area, which is where they were founded. And then our operational teams and a lot of, uh, as we've grown over time, our CEO is in California. I'm in California. We have teams operationally wherever we have a deployment. We have folks in different locations wherever we have a deployment because we, we put in a hub in to in each location where we are doing deliveries to, so the robots will come back to the hub in the night, for instance, and get plugged in and get cleaned up and and recharged and things like that. So we are all over the world. So Jennifer, I have to say, I'm going to ask you a question that, that is probably only adjacent to your, to your current business. Um, because I've been fascinated by liability issues around autonomous vehicles and, and, you owning the, you know, you're vertically integrated, so you you have kind of a single chain of liability. But I've been fascinated, like for, you know, if someone sells an autonomous car, car is then involved in an accident later, but the car at that point is owned by the, I was going to say driver, but it's not the driver, it's the passenger. You say it's a fatal accident. Who's liable? It's really a good question. And one that just personally, I've thought a lot about, and I'm not certain that I have the exact right answer. I constantly think from my legal point of view, I go back to insurance and the insurance mm-hmm. industry and wondering whether, because I've not worked for an autonomous car company, so I don't have this level of insight, but I wonder when something like that happens, to what the example you just gave, Justin, does the insurance company cover that? I'm not certain how that works. And it's, it's a really good question. It's one that I've thought about a lot. Actually, I have no answer either. And the only thing I thought of is what it portends to me is there won't be individual ownership of vehicles anymore. It has to be something <laughs> that is a vehicle as a service, right? Like you are doing with delivery robots that because otherwise it's too messy and you don't know how to ensure the vehicle or the person who wrote the code or the person who owns the vehicle now. And I'd be really interested to find out, and it's something maybe I'll have to look up when we're done talking today, is whether some of the the autonomous driving companies, trucking, cars, whatever it might be, whether they insure themselves through a captive insurance program or whether they go to an outside commercial insurer and whether the insurance industry is even ready. Oh, I have to believe. I have to believe this. There's underwriters out there that have been thinking about this for decades. But it might be so prohibitively expensive that it might make yep. might make sense for folks to do it captively in house. Right. Yep. It's a really interesting question. Yeah, and that that makes sense too, right? Which is like expand your offering beyond the vehicle itself, provide the protection to That's again right. create more demand for the product so it actually succeeds in the market. But mm-hmm. interesting. Um, can you tell yeah. Justin and I obsess a lot out of about autonomous vehicles, but also about <laughs> robotics? <laughs> It's so interesting. I understand why. So at the risk of making you blush, which on a podcast nobody will see, so that's okay, um, (laughs) you addressed a body of the UN. And there are not that many people I know that have done that, you know, in a professional context. So give our listeners some pro tips. Like if they ever make an audience like that, make it to an audience like that, how did you approach that? Oh, my goodness. Xanax, that's what I would need. Training. Training, training, media training, speech training. <laughs> I had the opportunity. It was wonderful. It was scary for certain at the same time as it was just empowering to do so. I was 
I had the opportunity to speak a couple of different times before um, different bodies of the International Telecommunications Union, also ICAO, which is a civil mm-hmm. aviation organization, part of the United Nations. And in every instance, I was so fortunate to have an a internal team that helped me with the speech, helped prepare me, let me practice with them, gave me media training, all of those things to help with my success. So that with a, I've often spoken in front of groups, even from when I was a child, as even when I was in high school, as part of my youth group, I was running for elections and giving speeches and things like that. So that doesn't, or I was in plays or musicals, or I'm a, I am a singer. So I'm often had been on stage. So those sorts of things don't terribly frighten me, but speaking in front of different UN groups and having hundreds of people in the audience is, is a little bit different and lots of training, lots and lots of practice. Oh my Pretending gosh. that you're standing in front of the mirror and, and repeating everything over and over is, I think it's just invaluable as silly as, as it, it may look. I have this great juxtaposition in my head right now of you addressing a body of the UN and then on the other side of the split screen, it's you singing on your Peloton. I know. Awesome. What she does at the top of her range. <laughs> but I do think it helped me. I was always active in choir and theater from as long as I can remember. And I think doing that gave me a comfort that many people don't have because when you're up there acting in a play or singing on a stage, there's no, no room for fear. Otherwise it's, it's just, you might as well not be on stage. Fair enough. Okay. So fear reminds me of a question, ironically enough, or appropriately (laughs) enough, I should say. I'm sure in your discussions with the executive leadership team are really always looking at new technologies coming online or that you see coming down the pike. Are there any that you find compelling or maybe more to your position, anything that strikes you as legally complex or risky? It could be machine learning or... AI. Yeah, I mean, are they risky? I don't know that I would say they're risky. I think they're in any, in any scenario, it, all of these new technologies, I guess they're risky if you don't know what questions to ask and you don't know how to think about the different eventualities of what could come from them and the different liability scenarios and those sorts of things. So I would say with any new innovation, you have to be able to think through the different possibilities of where things land, good, bad, or ugly over the time and and think through the different possibilities. And if you can do that and think in an agile way about all the different possibilities and plan for those, then the risk is diminished for certain because you're mitigating the risk in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so it's often an exercise and thinking through, okay, this would be really interesting to deploy. What, what does the scenario look like if it's extremely successful, but what are the corner cases that could make it disruptive to our business? And then how do we mitigate against that? So that way you go into it really eyes open and you plan and you do scenario planning and you think through what could go wrong. And that's the, the legal side of my brain. That's often pointing out all the things that could possibly go wrong. All those things that have a, a very small chance of a very big problem. And that's what I'm often pointing out and asking questions about and thinking through so that ideally we're well prepared and and well protected against those scenarios. So is that something you've built formal processes around as a company or um, is it something that's done on an ad hoc basis and you just all convene and discuss? Oh, I think the best companies do it in a, in a more methodical way for certain, Mm -hmm. because those are the companies that are moving quickly and thinking through how to adopt technology more, more quickly. And those that sit back and and potentially take a back seat are those which might really miss the innovation boat. If you will, you have to be brave and you have to be a bit fearless if you're trying to break down barriers and really move your company ahead, but you have to do so thoughtfully, of course, otherwise it's just too risky. Jennifer, this has been wonderful. I can't wait for our lunch in two weeks, but I'm glad we had a chance oh, to catch too. up and, and share this dialogue. I really want you and Justin to get together and have a real conversation in a real place without masks on, not in an And elevator. we can maybe we can be outside and have uh, an autonomous robot uh, deliver us 
uh, lunch. That would be awesome. That's great. Or some coffee, for sure. I love it. I think I think we're onto something. So, Justin, that means you got to fly out to Mountain View, or we can all go to Estonia. Okay. (laughs) Probably (laughs) easier to get to Mountain View, but um, you know, much more interesting, I think, to go to Estonia. I think you're right. We should just do both. I mean, you know, that's that's the fair answer. Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.